Father, even as we think of the, this portion of the Lord's Prayer where we ask, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, we recognize that Jesus taught his disciples to pray this prayer on a daily, break, daily basis, even as the, the verse preceding it says, give us today our daily bread. We often fail to recognize how powerful temptation is in our lives, how at work the devil is with his working of evil to lead us in a direction that will eventually bring our own destruction. So we do pray, Lord, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil and from the evil one and all of his schemes, recognizing that only you have the power to do so. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Lord, and as we look to your truth this morning, would you enable us to, to be delivered from this evil way in which we would once walk? In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, we're still continuing in the book of 2 Peter, so I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to that book, that letter, towards the end of the New Testament. I should have looked up the page number. It's on those pew Bibles. In my Bible, it's on page 1712. If that helps you, <laughs> probably not. Second Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at, and we're going to read the whole chapter. And it's a little bit long, so I won't ask you to stand. I simply would ask that you would honor the reading of God's Word by listening carefully uh, while you stay seated. But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when He brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority, behold, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. 
These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This is God's Word. Now, this is a long chapter, and there's a lot of stuff in here, and I'm telling you right up front, I am not going to get to all of it, because uh, there are some big questions that kind of require their own discussion. I'm just going to say that up front, so when we read, for example, verse 21, that talks about, 20 through 20, uh, 20 and 21, that talks about those who have tasted the good gifts of the Lord and turned away, uh, that we're going to save that for another discussion. Not that it's not worthy of one, it absolutely is, but there's just too much to get to in this. And when we talk, when you read about those, those uh, passages that talk about the ones who blaspheme the glorious ones, again, I know that may be a curiosity question, but we'll save that for another discussion as well. Uh, so I can get, and the reason I want to do that is, is not because I want to avoid those things because they're hard, but talk about the overall gist of why has he written this chapter? Why is this in this letter? And that's really what I want to get to, is to talking about 2 Peter chapter 2 in the overall context in which Peter has placed it in this letter. I mean, you would do that with any letter that you got. If in, we used to write letters back, you know, in the day, and when you wrote a letter, you expected someone to read it in its context, not pull one paragraph all by itself and try to figure out what it means or hone in on it, because you were communicating an idea, a whole thing, a whole thought. And so we want to do that with this. And as I thought about this particular chapter... And the context in which it's written, it's so connected to the first chapter, we have to go back to that similar theme that we've been talking about, and which Peter is talking about. He's saying it, he's, he's talking about the way that you live. He's exhorting the church to live a certain way. As you might recall, in the opening chapter, he says, confirm your calling and election. So he's very concerned about the way that they're living. And that's a very valid question to ask, and does it matter how you live at all. I mean, does it matter how you live? Because if you listen to the mantra of our world, they would say, it doesn't matter how you live, you just have to pick your way and go that way. And everyone has their own personal truth, their own personal way, and it's unique to you. So in some ways, they would say, it doesn't matter how you live as long as you pick it and it's authentic to you. That's this whole idea. I mean, the, to- the question of how do we live is a topic that's been discussed and debated for millennia. I mean, if you go and read the ancient philosophers, you know, pre-Christ, you would find them discussing this whole idea of ethics and morality. How are we to live? What does it mean to be good? All those kinds of questions are being asked. And what's interesting is that it's been asked for so long, you would think that we would have an answer by now. And yet still we struggle with the question, how should we live? Does it matter how we live? And what's even more sad is even within the context of the church, we have the question, does it matter how you live? Does it matter how you live? 
I mean, if you ask the average person on the street how you get into heaven, you're likely to hear an answer that says something about, well, you have to be a good person, right? It's a little bit instinctive. You have to be a good person. We think about heaven is full of good people, not bad people. And that, you know, satisfies us for the most part. Heaven is for good people, so you have to be good to get into heaven. But then, of course, that leads to another question as well. Okay, well, how good is good? How good is good enough? And the average person would answer that, well, as long as I have more good on my record than bad, you know, the scale is tilted in that direction, then I'm okay. And that can get you by for a while, but there comes times in everyone's life where I think they feel like, well, you know what, I'm not quite sure where the scale is. I mean, I know you guys have heard my testimony probably ad nauseum by this time, but, you know, there was a time when, for the most part, I always felt like I tipped the scale in the right direction. Growing up in the Christian household, thought I was going to go to heaven because I was a good person. And then getting into college and the typical lifestyle that a college person lives and finding that so out of, out of line with the way I was taught to live, I suddenly felt like the scales were tipping perhaps in the wrong direction and I was, to be honest, getting a bit terrified and trying to find my way back. And I would read the Bible more, I'd pray more, thinking I'll need to tilt the scales in the right direction and then I'll be okay. And I wrestled with this for quite some time until someone came and sat me down and simply told me the truth about who Jesus was and what He did, focusing on the fact that Jesus died for your sins. And this wasn't a new message to me. Like most people, I'd heard this. Christianity is about Jesus Christ who came and died for people's sins. That's a common, that's a common way of thinking. But it didn't, had never affected me in the sense that, you know, of my thinking that I still had to weigh the scales in the right direction. For as you, if, you, if you had pressed me, I would have answered, well, Jesus, yeah, of course He had to die, on, die uh, on the cross for people's sins, but He died for the people, the good people who had sins. That's the way I would think of it. You still have to be a good person. It's not that you don't have sin in your life. Of course you do. And so if you're, as long as they're not overcoming the good things that you do, then Jesus' death covers those sins, but not the other ones. And it was when He explained to me, well, you know, Jesus didn't come to die for the good people. I'm like, what? <laughs> no, Jesus actually came to die for the bad people. I'm like, where do you get that? Well, they'd read to me places like, you know, the book of Romans, for example. You know, Romans chapters 1 through 3, Paul goes into excruciating detail to convince all of the people reading, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, that you yourself are guilty before God. Summarizing the result in chapter 3, he says, there is no one who does good not even one, so that we are all alike rightly under the condemnation of God. And then he goes on, you, you know, you get to chapter 5 and you read verse 8 and it says, you know, God demonstrates His own love toward us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were the bad people, even Jesus says, I didn't come for the good, for the, for the healthy, I came for the sick. So it was this revelation when this person sat me down and explained to me that it's not the good people that Jesus came to die for, it is the bad people. And it just radically shifted my whole way of looking at things. And that's, you know, that's, I would put, point to that as the turning point in my life, and all of a sudden I couldn't read enough of the Bible, I couldn't find, get involved enough in learning about, more about this Jesus and what this is all about. And I remember that summer, that later that summer, uh, signing up to go on one of their beach projects where we 
went to spend the summer with a bunch of other college students to learn more about Jesus as we're, we're led by some, some teachers with the whole goal of, of sharing our testimony, our story, sharing this gospel that we have just learned about with others on these beaches. So we would do crazy things on Saturday as a group to gather a bunch of you know, people watching us, and then as we concluded, we'd tell them why we were there, and we'd try to talk to people in the, you know, in the crowd about the gospel, just walk them through this simple four, you know, this, this, this little gospel track that we were using called the Four Spiritual Laws. And, and I, I still remember trying to, sh- or sharing this, this gospel with one of the, the co-workers I had at, at Wendy's where I worked, which we had to do that during the week, uh, and I'm, I'm talking with her about the gospel, explaining this whole idea that, that I had just so revolutionized me. Jesus didn't come for the good people. He came for the bad because she was very concerned about the lifestyle that she'd been living up to that point. And I was like, no, no, He came to die for the sinner. You can't do anything to earn your salvation. Because Jesus came to exchange His righteousness for your sin. It's called the, you know, we think of that as the great exchange. Peter even talks about it in chapter, in his first letter that he, he writes. So you, if you have the righteousness of Christ already, then there is nothing else that you can do to add to that. And so she asked the in question, so it doesn't matter what I do? It doesn't matter how I live? And it kind of caught me off guard, and I thought, does it matter? (laughs) And of course, on the one hand, the answer is no. Not in terms of earning your salvation. It does not matter at all how you live. Because Christ has done everything required to earn you a place in God's family. But even as you say that, there is something inside you that just says, ah, no, that's not right. It does matter. It has to matter how you live. And of course it does matter how you live, but not in terms of adding anything to your salvation. But of course it matters how you live. When you go and read the New Testament, you find that at least half of all of these letters that the apostles wrote to the people of God are exhorting them in the way that they are to live. You would think if it didn't matter how you lived, we wouldn't have the back half of Galatians or Ephesians or any of these letters. We'd only have the first half. The first half, which talks about who Jesus is and what He has done for you. And the last half, He always gets gets to, well, if this is the case, then therefore you are to live in a very particular way. And I think one of the dangers of of the church today is that we don't realize that it still matters how you live, even though your, work, your, your good works aren't contributing to your own salvation. We get confused and think it opens up the door of freedom to live any which way we want. I mean, after all, isn't that why Jesus came? He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and the truth shall set you free. The problem is we interpret that freedom from living a certain way. Jesus has set us free from having to live according to the law. That's the way we like to interpret it. But that's actually not what He's setting us free from. He's setting us free to obey the law, not from the keeping of the law. He is setting us free from something. And we find that if we look at the context in which He said those things in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, where he says that truth will set you free, we find it in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You think, well, what are they being set free from? Not from abiding in the law, abiding in the word, but being set free from their slavery to sin. You see, Jesus did come to set us free, but not free from living a good life, free from living a bad life, a wrong life, a wayward life, a a life that is enslaved to sin. Now you think, well, what is sin? Sin is walking in any way out of accord with God's intended plan, designed for the way you live. That's sin. I know we like to translate the word sin into these evil and wicked things, like if you murder someone, that's sin. And yes, you're right, that is sin, and it's defined that way. But sin is so much broader than that. Sin is simply walking in your own individual way, which, by the way, is the mantra of our culture, is it not? Follow your heart. I I know we've talked about that whole mantra, follow your heart, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more this morning because it's, it's kind of a complex notion. But in general, it's not a good idea because your heart is not a source of truth. So it doesn't really make sense that we would follow our heart. Our heart doesn't know where to go. A heart is desperately trying to find something that's going to fill its emptiness. And it's always going to be like that. It's going to be pursuing that. The thing is, the heart is fickle when you think about it. I mean, how many different things have you pursued in your own life by following your heart? I mean, think about the time when you were a teenager. How many crushes did you have on somebody? How many different people were there? And that you, and those, they might have changed daily. <laughs> oh, one day your heart is convinced this is the person that you want to be with, and the very next day they may do something that just really drives you crazy, or someone prettier walks along and you say, oh, now my heart is going after here. Your heart is very fickle. It doesn't know what it wants, which is a frightening thing when we tell people to follow what our heart seems to be looking at at the moment, especially when you do things that are going to cause permanent damage to yourself, and this is what our society is doing now with the whole idea of the the transgender movement. Again, I'm not trying to preach on that, but it is a, a good example you know, someone who's, convinced, who's born a, a, a boy and chooses, says, well, my heart thinks it will be happy if I can pursue being a girl, and so they take all the measures to do that in terms of including surgery and other therapies, and when they find out that their heart is actually fickle, whether that's a year later or 10 years later or 20, 20 years later, and it, it finds something else it thinks is going to fulfill it, well, they've, you know, they've, they've permanently hurt, harmed themselves. So here's an example where it is dangerous to pursue your heart when your heart really doesn't know what it wants. So, instead of following the heart, what are we to follow? And that was the first chapter of 2 Peter. 2 Peter is saying, at least what we talked about last week, he's saying, look, you have a source of authoritative truth. We find it in the Scriptures. He says the Scriptures were written by men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, this was inspired words that God gave, revealed to men to write down so that you would know what is this trustworthy source of something that you can attach your heart to follow. He said, it's the Word. And he says, as we as apostles have the Word more 
more uh, fully confirmed because we were witnesses of Jesus Christ in all of His glory when God spoke to us on the mountain saying, this is my Son, listen to Him. While they had the Word of God in inspired form, the apostles had the living Word of God in their presence. And so their words too become authoritative as trustworthy sources of truth. How should you live? Well, you look to this which is, which is a true guide, the Word. Now, that's the context that gets us to chapter 2, establishing the fact that we have a source of authoritative truth that will lead us in the right way we are to live, and it's, it's the Scriptures and it's the words of the apostles. But now we come to chapter 2, and he says, but beware, be aware, there will be false teachers among you. There will be false teachers among you. Now, even just stopping right there, that's kind of a scary thing. He's saying they will be among you, not out there, foreign to. They will be in your midst, among you. And the example he uses to demonstrate that is to say this is how it was in the Old Testament too, by the way. Within the people of God, there were lots of false prophets. He calls them false teachers. The Old Testament, they called them false prophets. But the same was true. Who will lead your heart astray? We find, especially in Deuteronomy chapter 13, Moses explaining this whole very notion, this idea, where he says at the beginning of Deuteronomy 13, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You, will, you shall walk after the Lord your God to fear Him and to keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. But the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So there'll be teachers who stand up and do this in the Old Testament. We saw this with the prophets, the false prophets who would advise the kings. You know, go read the story you find in First and Second Kings, and there, there's some that are, that are quite entertaining, actually, how these prophets come in, and they think they have a word from God, and they speak it out loud to the king. And by the way, these men are not intentionally deceiving the king. They really believe what they are saying. So it's not a matter of sincerity. It's a simply a matter of truth. Who would lead them astray? But what's interesting is, in Deuteronomy 13, he doesn't stop there either. He says in verse 6, if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul, entices you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near or far off from you, from, the one, of the, from one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Now, I know this is Old Testament law and a little desperate, but this is the idea of what, this is how God thinks of it. This is the nature of someone, of these false teachers who are among you, who is not just people from the pulpit preaching falseness, but it's people that might be sitting right next to you that could be speaking false teaching, whispering words in your ear. And I think one of the deceptive things that gets whispered in the ears of churches that are like ours, that are reformed in their tradition, who want to champion the work of God in the, in the, uh, in the work of salvation, 
tend to highlight that work of God so much that it's easy for people to believe, then like, just like that lady said, well, then it doesn't matter how I live because the work is already done. We forget to realize that the whole purpose God sets you free is so that you can live according to His design. It's not just free to live any which way you choose and go. That is the purpose. And then he goes in to talk about the nature of the false teachers in this chapter. And there's, a, there's several things he says about these false teachers, or how do we identify them? One, he talks about they, there will be a sense of swift destruction that they will face, and I think that simply assures us that there is, in the end, there will be a judgment upon these false teachers. Whereas in Deuteronomy, they did it immediately. We may not see it immediately, but it is coming. And he gives several examples to ensure us that we know how that is. And and some of those examples he gives you are what happens in the time of Moses and again at the time of Lot. And in those cases, if we consider what was going on in those times, in in the time of Noah, we have God declaring that Every intention of man's heart is only evil all the time. Therefore, I'm going to wipe out mankind. But he preserves righteous Noah, the one who declared righteousness in the day of Noah, and seven others with him, it says in this text, that he might condemn all the rest. And you think, well, what were all the rest guilty of? What were they guilty of? Well, they had forsaken the Lord. In what way? It it is interesting that the the particular event that is described in Genesis chapter 6 that triggers this particular judgment is when he, dis- when he says, there were the sons of God who looked upon the daughters of men and saw that they were beautiful and chose, any that they, and chose whoever they wanted and had children with them. And these were the, the Nephilim, the giants, the, the heroes of old. And now the scholars debate, well, who are these sons of God? What was exactly going on here? You know, some of the ideas that the sons of God were angels that were marrying women. Some of them were saying that this is the king's choosing any of those who are the, the, the other women, uh, perhaps even other married women already. Some would also say that these were the sons of Seth versus the, sons marrying, the godly line of Seth marrying into the, the wicked line of, of Cain. And regardless of any of those, the outcome is still the same. What was happening is this were, these were forbidden sensual or sexual practices that were going on and producing something that was abominable. That was the result. And it is interesting to look at when this happened at the start of the flood, and by the time that Moses leads the people out of their slavery in Egypt, and he brings them and hands them off to Joshua to lead into the promised land, Joshua marches them into the promised land, and we call that the conquest. And there are certain cities, by the way, not every city in in, in the conquest was devoted this way, but there were certain cities that were devoted to complete destruction. Now, the Bible isn't necessarily explicit as to why those cities and not others, but we do find some things that are in common with them, and one of them is the presence of these, this race of giants, these Nephilim, these products of this sensual, sexual perversion. And he says this is a lot of what false teachers will do. False teachers will, will entice you to pursue your, the, the lusts of your flesh, in whatever, kind that, whatever manner that re- reflects itself, saying it's okay to pursue it. It's, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's going to help you. It's going to be the thing that brings you a sense of joy and pleasure and happiness. The same time in the days of Lot, he says, 
Lot was witnessing, he was tormented day by day by watching the people around him in the cities do, again, perverted sexual practices. I mean, we saw that as you go read the account of Lot. When the angels come in after, after they tell Abraham, we're going, to, we're going to Sodom to bring destruction. And when they go into Sodom and they stay with Lot, he brings them into his house. And immediately as they're into the house, they must have been beautiful because the people outside you know, were banging on the door, screaming for Lot to send out these visitors that he has that they might know them, which means in, an, in a sexual manner. And as a result of that, these activities... The sensual nature that the life of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah led were rain burning sulfur upon him. They were destroyed, just as the world was destroyed in the time of Noah because people pursued these sensual practices. Now, these sensual practices have also some characteristics. As you go through and you continue to read in the chapter, you'll find out that the nature of them is, is a insatiable that those who teach them are motivated by greed. Now, that would imply in some circles that, or in some ways that we would think, well, they knew what they were doing and they were greedy. But I don't necessarily think they knew they were being greedy. I think the idea of being greedy and this fact that what they are pursuing is insatiable kind of go hand in hand. If you're, if you're, if you're taking something and it doesn't satisfy you, well, what do you tend to do? So, well, I just need more of it. I need more of it. So if you're drinking something, you drink more, right? Or you do this more. And when you continue to do something more and more, you have to get more and more of it to, to try and get some measure of satiation. Well, the rest of the world would look upon that and say, well, you're greedy because you are greedy for it. And as a result of that, it says they're exploiting the people. And that's what happens. There's an exploitation of people to get the very thing that they think they need to satisfy their lusts, the sensual nature of what they're about. I mean, we see this happening in the world today. Who are these false teachers? Do we see them in the church preaching from pulpits as a whole? I mean, I think, yeah, we do. I mean, there is a great pressure upon the church to accept these practices, especially these sexual practices that the world has decided that they're going to champion, once considered mental disorders on the fringes, frowned upon by society, are now being embraced and championed to the degree that anyone who says that you can't practice these, they're the ones who are morally evil. And so there is a church that finds itself, we want to be winsome, we want to reach people with the gospel. But how do we reach these people who are suffering under this? Well, we can just accept it. We can reinterpret, perhaps, these passages in the Bible to talk about it. And by the way, if you ask him, you'd find that they had great intentions. We want to reach people with the gospel. That God came to save sinners. We just confuse the idea of what exactly sin is. Sin isn't living according to God's Word, we would say. Sin is living in a way that is against your own nature. You see, it's appealing to the sensual nature of who we are. You still have to find that one thing out there that's going to satisfy your heart and pursue that. Follow your heart. It's going to tell you what will satisfy it. 
Peter's saying, that doesn't work. In fact, later on the passage, he goes on, he calls them waterless springs, mists in the storm. Waterless springs, you're going to a spring to find some measure of satisfaction to drink from it, and you find that it is, it is empty. It's a mist in the storm. Do you need mists in the storm, by the way? A mist in the storm is quickly forgotten. It's, it's gone. It's irrelevant. It's not, it's nothing. I mean, if you waited 100 years from now and you look upon what our society embraces the right way to live, you'd probably see that, oh, it was just a mist in the storm. It was a waterless spring. We see it now. You didn't see it at the time, but we can see it now because it doesn't last, because it can't last. Why can it not last? Because it can't deliver on its promises. It will never satisfy the soul. The soul was made for something else. The soul was made for something else. Now, where, where is our hope? Our hope is found in the fact that if you look carefully, when he talks about Lot, he says, God knows how to rescue the godly from the trials that they face. He knows how to rescue them. Well, how does He do it? <laughs> he doesn't explicitly spell that out in chapter 2, but remember, this is the whole context of the whole letter. And in chapter 1, we, if you'll remember what we call, He says He's given us everything necessary that pertains to living a life of godliness, to living according to the way of God. And by the way, when Jesus said in John 14, 6, He says, do you, do you guys, you memorize the word people, you guys remember that verse? It says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I want you to think about those two, there's three things that go together. The way, the truth, and the life. We like to think about it in terms of the truth. Well, Jesus is the truth. He's the standard of God. He is the revealed, He is the living Word of God, therefore He is the truth. He's not only showing you how you become a child of God through Him, but He's showing you something else too. He's showing you the way, and He's showing you the life. And those things have to be connected. If you know the truth, then He's also revealing to you the way that you ought to walk, the way that you ought to live your life. And if you live your life according to that way, trusting that Jesus has revealed it as the truth, then what will you experience? Life. You experience life. Now, there is a sense in which that life is eternal, but if it's eternal, it doesn't mean it doesn't discount right now. There is, even a, there is a measure of when you choose to follow the way that God says to follow, you will experience, even in the present, while sometimes hardships and suffering, you will feel a joy in the soul that you can experience in no other way. Now, if He's given us Jesus Christ as the way we understand this, how do we have everything needed to live a life of godliness? Now we begin to think about, well, what, what has He given us? What has He given us? He's given us, we, we, we often call the ordinary means of grace, the Word, especially the preached Word, the prayers, and the sacraments. And, and those three things, by the way, happen in the context of the particular church that engages together with each other. This is where you find these things. God has given these things to us to show us the way we are to live, the way of truth. And if we really had any idea 
the destruction that the wrong way is leading us towards, even in the experience of this life. For example, if you look, what is it, verse 13? Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. There is a sense in even in this life there is a suffering for their wrongdoing. If we really had an idea of that, if we really had an idea of how wayward our hearts really were and how, how easy it is for the enemy to weave and tempt us and draw us away, how da- endangered our soul was, then we would never miss a moment in worship. Because it's not just a place for us to go to bring our offering of worship. It's a place for us to go and find our rest in Christ. There's only one thing, by the way, that is going to motivate you to walk in the way that Jesus says to walk. And that is to say that what, what He has in store for you at the end of that walk is something that you believe with all your heart will finally be the thing that satisfies the longings in your soul. And I think that's where we struggle. We think that living the life that God says to live is a joy kill. And when you think of it as a joy kill, you have in mind something other than God that you think is going to give you joy. And here's where we go back to the idea of following your heart. Because I'm going to tell you a secret. All of you in this room, including me, follows our heart. It's not a question of whether you're going to follow your heart. The question is, what is your heart following? What is your heart actually looking to to be its treasure? What is your heart treasure? Now, again, that's a, that should be a key word. I mean, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I mean, that's a true statement whether you're a believer or not. The thing is, what do you actually treasure? Because if it's the things of the earth, the sensual things that are associated and tied to this earth, if that's where you treasure, even if you so think you want to be a part of God's family, you're going to find that those things are always running in conflict, and you will be always choosing, especially when they come in conflict, one over the other. And that's actually where you find, what is, what is, what is the God that I'm seeking? Because I don't think intellectually we have a very easy way to answer that. And the best way that you have to answer that, what is really the God of my heart, is to say, well, what wins when I have to make decisions of choices of of where I should engage my time and my energy and my priorities? That's going to reveal to you where your heart is looking to satisfy it. And even if you're in church three out of four Sundays but your heart is bent towards something else, all this time in church doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. I mean, it's relevant in the sense that that's the way the Holy Spirit works and He will eventually get you and draw you in and hopefully open your eyes to see it. So, I take that back. It is very relevant. But it's irrelevant in the sense that it's, it's, it's functioning in a, in a way that's trying to pull you in two directions. It's giving you the sense that I'm okay when you're really not think that's what I'm trying to say. There is a danger in thinking that, oh yeah, I'm okay. God is really my God, when all the time there are other things that demand your, that, that pull on you. So, I'm saying, look guys, that's happening to every one of us every day. 
the pulling. And we are far weaker than we think we are. We need the ordinary means of grace far more than we think we do. We need the others that are the body of Christ far more than we give them credit. God has given you everything that you need that pertains to life and godliness, and it's right here. Don't forsake it. God died for bad people. You are a bad person, but God has made you right. And now He's given you the tools that show you not only how to escape the punishment of sin, but the power of sin over your life. As you come each week, the idea is that you see a more, a growing picture of the beauty and the wonder and the majesty of God so that He can eventually become the treasure that your heart pursues and desires. That's why we come to worship, by the way. It's one of the reasons why we should be coming to worship. And I'm going to tell you, I've been here preaching for, what, 18 years. I've been a member of the church for I don't know how many decades, and I find myself looking back at myself 10 years ago, and I have grown more and more in understanding that I need this place so much more than I ever thought I did. You'd think in the growing of maturity in the Word that you need it less. No, what I realize about myself is, oh my, there is so much more to the beauty of God than I can even fathom, and I need it. Well, I've preached too long, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the warnings of false teachers that would lead us to follow things that can never satiate our hearts, that in fact will lead to our ultimate destruction. And while we face the trials of this world every day that seeks to tempt us away and follow other things, promising that this will be the thing that finally makes us happy, remind us, Lord, as we come into Your presence that You are to be treasured. Captivate us. In Jesus' name, amen.